0: I got baggage. You probably noticed we took a brief hiatus last week so that I could travel to Queens, New York and talk to artists grappling with the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. We'll have that special report to you later this week. But this episode, I'm talking to three fellow hyperallergic editors. And then we'll travel to Rome to talk to writer Anthony Mayanlati about the situation there as the Italian capital slowly opens back up. I'm Hrug Bartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. So now I'm joined by Hyperallergic's news editor, Jasmine Weber, LA editor Elisa Wackelmino, both of them are in Los Angeles, and Ellie Duke, our Southwest editor based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So let's get started.
1: A lot has happened in the time since we last gathered for a podcast about the news. We've seen a number of petitions circulating from concerned art workers, scholars, and artists about the state of museums right now. Last week, Hakeem Bashara, our staff reporter, covered two petitions. Um, The first was launched by an anonymous group called the NYC Art Workers which urged museums to do everything that they could to retain all of their staff during the crisis. It was really heavily critical of the income disparity between leadership and lower level employees that garnered thousands of signatures. Their primary demand is, quote, before a single museum worker is laid off, let every mid six or seven figure museum director draw a salary of zero. What's interesting is that we saw a similar demand pop up in a petition by laid off workers from the San Francisco Museum of Art who penned their own open letter that was covered by another staff reporter, Valentina Delicia. It was addressed to SFMOMA director Neil Benezra and members of the executive cabinet asking that Benezra take a salary of zero. These workers, there were over 100 uh, on-call contracted or freelance workers who have been laid off from SFMOMA, who say that to cut your salary by 50% is not enough. Your annual earnings alone could sustain 30 frontline staff members. Uh, Benezra takes in a salary of about $1 million as of 2018. We've seen these demands pop up a lot of these high-level museum administrators taking in these huge salaries, whereas they have front front of house staff who are making 30K, 40K a year. And yet those low paid staff are the first to go when it comes to trying to retain some of this budget as the museums try and weather the storm of COVID-19. I think Um, it's so
0: interesting. This is the first time I've ever heard a museum staff do something like this. It's really interesting.
1: Yeah, I think it really speaks to the moment that we're living in where the workers are really trying to reclaim the huge importance that they play at these organizations. One of the most egregious examples that we've seen is the Museum of Modern Art in New York City ending the contracts of all of its freelance educators. Which really created a ripple effect in the art world. People were up in arms about this.
0: Well, I mean, particularly since they just did a major renovation, you can imagine why that people would be furious.
1: Absolutely. Hakeem Dooley covered another open letter organized by Yana Graham, who's a researcher and curator at Goldsmiths at the University of London, and Carmen Morsch of the Maines Academy of Art at Johannes Gutenberg University. They came together with other art scholars to write an open letter implying a level of hypocrisy on the part of institutions. Diversity is this big push in modern museums, and we see that education departments tend to be the most diverse departments, aside from security, as well as uh, other front of front of house staff. And so one line from that petition, at a moment when museums and galleries claim an interest in their diversification, why do they defund the very people and communities made most vulnerable by the current crisis? And I think that that really sums up what a lot of people are feeling. They're concerned that these museums are treating education in front of house staff as disposable when those are those are the departments that are interfacing so much with the museum's target audiences. Well, actually, I guess I wouldn't call them necessarily target audiences because what we've seen is that museums will do anything to retain these upper middle class and wealthy white supporters but the populations that these museums say that they want to reach out to and they want to become welcome to they're treating the people who are best able and who have proven themselves as incredibly capable of interfacing with those populations they're discarding them at the first sign of a crisis. Yeah.
0: And Jasmine, just uh, I'd love to get uh, Elisa's perspective because, of course, she covers California and Los Angeles, and our editor based out there. Elisa, have you been hearing anything about this issue, or just in terms of any perspectives that might be useful to listeners?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing a pattern across museums, you know, across the country that the most laid off workers are uh, workers in education and gallery attendance, and uh, as well as workers in retail departments and audiovisual services. That was certainly the case at MoCA Los Angeles, which was the first major museum here in LA to lay off a lot of staff. So that happened late March. The museum laid off all part-time staff. Um, a total of 97 workers, which represents half of the museum's total staff of 185. And again, all workers in those those departments. And the explanation that the museum gave is that um, none of these positions can be performed remotely. But as Matt Stromberg wrote a piece for us on when it happened, and he interviewed some of the staff that was laid off, including an educator, who made the point of saying that she could have done a lot of great work remotely. You know, she and her colleagues were working to provide online content and programming for a virtual MOCA. And um, she'd been working there for five years. So it's definitely definitely disheartening. And I think this kind of news is confusing to people. You know, as Jasmine was saying, these museums have money and to see how they choose to, what they choose to cut, right? So MOCA had just gotten a big Donation of $10 million, which had allowed the museum to start offering free admission this past January. So I think there was a lot of confusion around that. And similar confusion around the Broad Museum, right? Um, so the Broad Museum laid off 130 employees last week. Again, mostly retail workers and uh, visitor services staff, as well as one full time employee. And the museum is private, right? It's owned by a billionaire, Eli Broad. So again, there's criticism there around the need. To, to lay off people. And in the case of the Broad, the museum's explanation was that it's foreseeing decreased attendance when the museum does eventually reopen. So they're arguing that they actually just won't need as much staff in the long run. And our reporter, Hakeem Bashara actually spoke with one of the visitor service associates who was who was laid off, Jose Guevara. And um, he clearly expressed the workers' frustration specifically around around the museum, you know, being owned by a philanthropist and it firing or choosing to lay off rather 130 employees. So let's just play a brief clip here from Jose Guevara.
3: I mean, yeah, we're like super angry because
2: they could have paid us. Like we're like in the middle of a disaster. A lot of us aren't going to be able to pay for rent and all these like really like drastic changes are coming in. And instead of being like, okay, we'll pay you. And then Whatever restructuring we're doing, then we'll let you guys go. But no, it's just set, so let's go. And it's just coming from like a philanthropist guy. So yeah, a lot of people are struggling to find a new job after being laid off. And in the case of, of this visitor's associate, he's actually undocumented. And therefore, he can't even apply for, for unemployment.
0: It's unbelievable. Thanks so much, Elisa. So, Jasmine, I wanted to ask you a question because this sort of ties in. You know, one of the things that Elisa said that I thought was so interesting was the fact that Mocha had received this big grant for admissions, and now, considering there's nobody coming in, they can't use them. It makes me wonder how these sort of like financial things are organized internally. Um, we had done a little bit of an article investigation into how these endowments are are managed. And I'm wondering if you can give us a little sense of what Valentina Delicia's article about that explored.
1: Yeah, I would definitely want to point everyone to Valentina's article. It's called Why Museums Can't Always Fall Back on Endowments. It really dives into the inner workings of museum finances and why, despite a place like the Met having so much money billions of dollars in their endowment, why they're not necessarily able to dip into it and why, despite the museum projecting a $150 million loss during the crisis, they're not planning on dipping into their endowment. She speaks with a number of experts, one of whom is Christy Coleman, who's the executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation in Virginia, who is able to offer some information on why museums' finances are first of all, so opaque in terms of what they're explaining to the public, but also just how many restrictions they're really dealing with. Coleman tells Valentina about the fact that regardless of what we know about museum endowments, we're dealing with a situation that's unprecedented. Coleman was heading museums during the aftermath of 9-11. And from what we've heard, this crisis will have an even worse financial fallout than that aftermath, as well as the Great Recession in 2008.
0: So now, what are some of the other stories for the last couple of weeks you think people should know
1: about? Uh, meanwhile, galleries are struggling to survive as well. Um, we've seen Leslie Heller Gallery in New York City become the first in the area to close permanently. Sadly, we're expecting that there will be other galleries to follow. We've seen organizations like the New Art Dealers Alliance really pushing for a rent strike and for rent relief. So many activists across the city, many of whom whom are artists, are organizing to ask the city government for a rent freeze. So many people have lost their jobs, as we've spoken about on this podcast, whether it's in the arts, or whether these restaurant workers, people are really struggling right now. And April 1st, sadly, the city did not pass any sort of rent relief regulations. And now we have another rent cycle coming up and people are going to be in in an even worse position. A lot of people haven't gotten their federal stipends and people are really scrambling. New York City is an incredibly expensive place to live. And people are going to have to choose between feeding themselves or paying their rent. And many people cannot do either one of those. So we're really keeping an eye on that here at Hyperallergic to support the small businesses that are struggling to survive and the art workers who are struggling to pay their rent.
0: Such an important story, uh, absolutely. I think it's it's sort of mind-boggling the way this has all been handled, and I think we're all trying to understand what's what's going on. But I do still think that we're going to be seeing a lot more galleries close. Though there was that little uh, that little glimmer of hope. It sounded like when the state announced that nobody can be evicted until next April. So we'll see. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Jasmine?
1: Yeah. um, I want to highlight for our readers some of the more feel-good stories that we've been working on for people who do want to break because the COVID-19 news can really weigh on you heavily. So if you're looking for an escape, Valentina has actually written about a really great bilingual digital archive in Spanish and English that was launched by the MFA Houston. There's over 8,000 documents that are related to Latin American and Latinx art history. There's critical texts, personal statements by artists, different manifestos, and a lot of really beautiful imagery that I think that our readers would be interested in. And on a creepier note, Hakeem Bachara wrote about a social media hashtag started by the Yorkshire Museum, where museums are now sharing their creepiest objects, some of which are a taxidermic mermaid of sorts, a pincushion made to look like little kids' heads, and then, of course, a plague doctor's mask.
0: I mean, the fake mermaid is really um, (laughs) the stuff of nightmares. That's (laughs) true. Truly. (laughs) Truly, truly is. That's great. Thanks so much, Jasmine. So, Lisa, did you want to um, get us up to speed in terms of what's going on in Los Angeles and uh, California right now?
2: Yeah, so to continue um, on the update of what, how museums are responding to the pandemic, you know, we mentioned that, that MOCA laid off a lot of its part-time staff, as did the Broad. Uh, the other big museum that's experienced layoffs is the Hammer Museum at UCLA, which laid off 150 student employees who mainly worked at the reception desk and in the box office. But in better news, neither the Getty nor LACMA has laid off any employees. Um, the Getty, of course, has a giant endowment. You know, we're talking about endowments. They have an endowment of $7 billion, whereas MoCA, for example, it's just $136 million for context.
0: Could, can we just take a moment to pause at the fact that, it was, you know, <laughs> that the Getty has a $7 billion endowment? I mean... <laughs>
2: I don't even yeah, it's pretty say. astounding. It's pretty astounding.
0: It is bigger yeah. than the Met's. And the thing was interesting was if you, if you remember Jasmine when we were reporting on the museum's asking the federal government for a bailout. I think that bailout was only 4 billion dollars, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, so there was a big push by the Association of Museum Directors And the Association of Art Museums, apologies if I'm getting those titles slightly wrong, but they were a part of a number of museum coalitions that were asking the government for, yeah, $4 billion for nonprofit museums nationwide. They didn't even get half of that. The NEA and the NEH ended up getting $150 million each to disperse to different organizations across the country. But it's pretty wild when we think about the inequalities between these museums and what their endowments are and then to see that even the museums on the wealthiest spectrum with billions of dollars in their endowment are still leaving their most precarious workers in terrible positions.
0: I mean, all we would have to do is nationalize the Getty and we could solve all the museum issues and they'd still have billions of dollars in their endowment. (laughs) But I'll stop. (laughs) Alisa, go ahead.
2: Well, at least the Getty did put together a $10 million COVID relief fund, which will go towards LA-based nonprofits and visual arts organizations. So we'll see the effects of that as as it goes and put into place. Something else that we're looking into here, museums here in LA, is that many of them had big construction plans this year. And it seems that almost all of them are moving forward with them, um, though not as quickly, which means that opening dates will likely be pushed. So these museums include, of course, LACMA, the Hammer Museum, the Academy Museum, and the Lucas Museum. And Matt Stromberg is currently working on a story about this, so we'll get more information soon, but basically, as far as I understand, the county and city of Los Angeles have declared building construction to be an essential activity, and so they've um, encouraged LACMA to move forward with their construction plans on their new building for the permanent collection, which, as many of you might know, is extremely controversial. It's a $750 million renovation project that is actually shrinking gallery space. So people are not a fan.
0: And people are asking to see what the permanent collection galleries might look like or any kind of floor plan at all. And nothing's emerged, has it?
2: That's right. No, nothing's emerged. It's pretty mysterious. So people are frustrated, understandably. You know, it's a lot of money. It's a very expensive renovation um, coming from the city. And then the Hammer Museum is also also expanding, though though the construction plans they said are slowing down as they're you know trying to follow safety precaution for their workers, and the Academy Museum and Lucas Museum had paused construction but are planning on resuming construction at the end of this month. So in theory now. And then the next thing we're looking at is the LA galleries. As far as I know, no no galleries have closed yet, but Carolina Miranda did write a great report for the LA Times detailing the pandemic's impact on the gallery scene here, which, by the way, only recently in the past 15 years or so has grown to, to a really more considerable size. And so for her story, she interviewed a mix of 35 galleries and reported that a quarter of them will likely need to close if the situation doesn't improve. And of course, the mega galleries are likely to be the ones to survive. But galleries are joining forces here in LA. Jeffrey Deitch began this initiative called galleryplatform.la and reached out to 60 art galleries, a mix of blue chip, you know, Gagosians on there, Hauser and Worth, as well as smaller ones, you know, like Commonwealth and Council, The Box, um, LA Louvre. And they're forming what they're calling a gallery association. So to start things off, they're launching a website in mid-May where they'll all rotate exhibitions. And the idea, obviously, is to encourage online sales for the time being, since sales have unsurprisingly gone down all around but they're also hoping to extend this initiative beyond the pandemic. So the idea is to really create a gallery association Well, they'll coordinate more joint programming down the line and et cetera. So we'll see what happens with that. I did reach out to a few gallerists to see what they're planning on with this project and what, what they think of the initiative overall. And I got a few interesting responses. Suzanne Belmetter said they're planning on promoting some of their younger LA-based artists through this initiative because they want to try to support the local art scene more at this time. Love um Other galleries. Yeah, me too. I thought that was cool. And then other galleries are going to highlight artists who were impacted by COVID and had a lot of canceled projects, so to try to shine a light on those projects. And then the other galleries are sort of seeing the silver lining of all this, right? So Camille Weiner, the director of Robert's projects, thinks it's great that they're finally tapping into the potential of what can be done online. You know, in her words, she told me, different audiences and engagements, what's not to love? Digital platforms are a valid medium for experiencing work. And, you know, that's something that many people are talking and thinking about, you know, how to how to use the Internet to our advantage. And and I think some people are scrambling with that because they've never done it before. and, And but we're also seeing some pretty great projects emerge out of that, too.
0: Great. Thank you, Elisa. I think it's all really interesting. It's you know, I was particularly interested in the Broad Museum because, of course, the Broad Museum, as most museums, even if they're private, they tend to get a lot of tax breaks during their construction and other periods. So it makes me wonder It's like if whether these uh, tax breaks should come with maybe more guidelines for institutions. I've been thinking a lot about that recently, but this was such a great report. And uh, I really do hope the LA galleries will have, be able to come together and find out a, a system that works. Jeffrey Deitch, of course, no stranger to the art world. Kudos to him for at least trying to help his fellow galleries and see where that goes. So. Totally. So Ellie, I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a sense of what's going on in Santa Fe and the surrounding Southwest area.
4: Yeah. So New Mexico is quite a poor state and has fewer hospital beds per capita than nearly every other state, a huge elderly population. So there are a lot of factors that put New Mexico very much at risk in this pandemic. But um, there was actually a story in the New York Times on Friday about how New Mexico prepared and the aggressive and early measures that were taken. So the situation in New Mexico, actually it seems like the curve has kind of been flattened at least for now. Um, An interesting thing about the museums in New Mexico is that some of the biggest, museums are state funded, which adds this additional factor, especially because so much of New Mexico's income comes from oil and gas. So before this pandemic happened, I think the state was feeling kind of flush, but that's obviously changed a lot in the last month. So that state funding could be part of the reason there haven't been major layoffs in New Mexico museums yet. But much like Elisa and Jasmine were saying, it's contract workers and lower paid workers are definitely... Worried about their jobs and feeling like those those types of things might be coming down the line
0: and so mm-hmm. what what is the general mood in terms of coronavirus and its impact on New Mexico in the region
4: I think that there is a feeling that of relief that there were these early and aggressive measures that were taken in New Mexico. We could have been hit really hard. And obviously, it's still been devastating and the economy is, has been devastated, but it could have been a lot worse. It's still, I think, New Mexico will stay in shelter in place for as long as for probably longer than other states and surrounding states. I know that Colorado is transitioning to safer at home right now, although that for galleries and museums will remain closed for the time being. So my sense of it is that things are going to remain the same for the foreseeable future in terms of staying at home and things staying pretty closed down.
0: Great. How has the art community been responding?
4: Well, earlier this month, we wrote about the cancellation of this summer's Indian Market in Santa Fe, which is a huge source of revenue in New Mexico and provides a huge source of income for many Native artists. And is also just a, a central and beloved tradition for many, many people. I talked with one artist, um, Jessa Ray Growing Thunder, who's literally been going to Indian Market since she was a week old. She was born at UNM Hospital in Albuquerque and was brought to the market just a couple days later, and she hasn't missed one since. So you can see that Indian market is a very, very important tradition for many people. So the update on that story is that the Southwestern Association for Indian Arts, or SWA, which is the nonprofit that funds and organizes Indian market, has hired a new executive director, Kim Payon. She is the first Native woman to hold the position, and she's just about two weeks into the job. So we'll have to keep readers updated as things progress. It's still definitely a lot remains to be seen. But as of now, she says they are exploring the possibility of a virtual Indian market and developing the partnerships and platforms that would make that possible, and also looking into other revenue models and grants that would help us survive the financial shortfall that will be caused by the postponement of this year's market. You
0: mm-hmm. should you should also mention we're also doing a series highlighting some of the artists from the market that won't be able to show. So do you want to give people a sense of what that series is about?
4: Yeah, sure. So we'll be doing an ongoing series where we ask curators and members of the Native arts community to highlight five artists that they were looking forward to seeing this summer. So we're hoping that that can play a little part in, you know, making up for some of the lost exposure that the postponement will cause. One thing I wanted to highlight was, uh, or an issue that Payon raised that I wanted to flag was the lack of access to internet in Native communities and how that might affect participation in a virtual market. So she said that SWIA is hoping to partner with tribal governments to try to bridge that. So in whatever model created for a virtual market, there isn't an accessibility issue, but that's something to be aware of. And related to that, since we've done some stories recently about how the 2020 census is important for the arts, I wanted to just mention the disproportionately low census response rates in tribal nations and how that could affect arts funding. So the census strategy for reaching Native communities before the pandemic involved extensive door-to-door contact, which of course has been impacted by the current crisis. They haven't been able to do field work in over a month. So right now we're looking at a response rate of half a percent in the whole nation and rates below 10% in among other tribes and pueblos whereas just for reference the national response rate so far is a little over 53%. So that's a super concerning.
0: Yeah, that disparity issue. is unbelievable.
4: Yeah, it's crazy. And you know the Navajo Nation Ooh. has been hit extremely hard by this pandemic. They're reporting more cases per capita than every state except New York and New Jersey. So you know, it's a, it's a major issue in the Navajo Nation, and it's, you know, affecting people's health, obviously, and the economy and all of those things. But also, you know, the census response rates could have a major effect on the billions of dollars in federal allocations. So right now, organizations are strategizing other ways to reach out to folks in these communities and also hoping to resume field operations in the summer. But it's a concerning situation.
0: Absolutely. And I think uh, a lot of people may not be aware of that Navajo Nation, I think something like 25-30% of the population doesn't have running water. And I mean, there are a lot of other obstacles and challenges that they're going to face in in regards to coronavirus that it's unbelievable. It's it's, it's unbelievable this country hasn't been able to really provide for its indigenous uh, populations.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Incredibly sad. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to bring up, Ellie?
4: Yeah, I wanted to tell our our New Mexico listeners or, or anybody, but New Mexico listeners will benefit especially about this social media challenge that Vital Spaces is organizing, which is sort of following the lead of museums like the Getty, asking people to recreate famous artworks from their collections. So the Santa Fe nonprofit Vital Spaces, which I wrote about in January, has partnered with five New Mexico art institutions and challenged people to recreate a work from one of the institution's collections to to social media with the hashtag NMtwinning. And this is where it differs there's a cash prize provided by the Falling Colors Foundation. So every week, five submissions will be randomly selected to win $200. And one of those weekly winners is designated to be a middle or high school student. And then at the end of the month, a team of judges will pick three favorite images for a $300 prize. And winners can keep or donate their money. And anyone can enter, obviously, but you have to live in New Mexico to win the money. So well, I thought
0: that would be a nice. fun... Yeah. yeah, that's nice. And I just wanted to sort of add, I had said twenty five thirty, but NPR had reported nearly 40% of homes in the Navajo Nation lack running water or sanitation. So wow. to kind of give yeah. you a sense of the scale. That's great, Ellie. I appreciate, I appreciate that lighter note um, because a lot of the news has been very heavy, of course, the last couple of weeks.
4: Yeah, so, you got to um, have a balance.
0: <laughs> absolutely. So I wanted to also bring up Hakeem Bashar's post from April 27th about museums, worldwide who are slowly preparing to open. And one of the things in in that story that really interested me was the fact that the museums in Hong Kong were actually forced to close for a second time because of a second wave of the pandemic. And that's something we haven't been talking about yet, which is during these pandemics, often there are different waves. Today, I was listening to an author who had been working on this topic for a very long time, and his prediction was that we might have a whole new wave at the end of October. And that's something that I thought was sort of interesting, but at the same time, museums throughout Europe, have started to open. So like last week, several museums in Brandenburg in Germany um, opened their doors to the public. They're still complying with social distancing and containment measures, which I'm sure is going to impact the bottom line of a lot of museums that open because they won't be able to get the people through the door, of course, because of all the different criteria. But also in other German states, one museum was slated to open actually on April 28th. While others in Berlin, Saxony, and Dresden are saying they'll start to gradually open on the 4th. And then in Austria and in Switzerland, they've also been announcing possible dates and in Belgium as well. Uh, A lot of museums have announced they're going to open on May 14th. Even in Italy, May 14th seems to be a date. And as we know, Italy was probably one of the most, the hardest hit countries. And they're also saying that some museums and libraries are set to open. So it's going to be interesting to watch because currently in China, where, of course, the pandemic began, about 180 museums have been taking bookings across the country, allowing visitors to come in under new restrictions that they've had since March. So, for instance, uh, in Hakim's report, he mentions that at the Shanghai Museum, there is a limit of 2,000 people who can be in the museum, and while at the China Art Museum, 5,000 people. And, of course, they're going to insist that all visitors wear masks, and they book their tickets in advance. So... This will be a very interesting um, time. And then South Korea, which in a former podcast, we did mention they were starting to open museums. The National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art in Seoul actually rescinded their previous plans to open on March 23rd. Um, and they are going to remain uh, closed. Uh, so interesting times, interesting times. Uh, Hakim's report, he also mentions that the Metropolitan Museum here in New York does still plan to reopen on July 1st, while the Perez Art Museum down in Miami announced that they're planning September 1st as a possible reopen date, while so many of the other museums in the city, uh, from the Whitney to the New Museum to the Queens Museum, as well as the Museum of Natural History said they actually haven't determined a date yet. So I'd love to open it up a little bit to all of you and just any thoughts you might have about this sort of anxiety about when museums are going to open and when the quote-unquote art world is going to get back at it.
1: Personally, I would be shocked if the Met actually reopens on July 1st. That's a
0: great point. That's a great point, Jasmine. I'm a little hesitant too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely expecting that that will be pushed back. Sadly, just because we're not necessarily seeing a downturn of the curve. Back in New York, the curve is getting flatter, but not necessarily turning down. So I think that July 1st reopening is a really ambitious goal that I don't know if it'll necessarily be safe to do when the time comes.
0: I think that's such a good point, Jasmine, particularly I think the fact that even if it does reopen, it's going to be a very different experience. I mean, they're not going to be throngs of people. We may have only 4,000 people allowed in the Met, if that. And I wonder what that experience is going to be like. Elisa, I know you had something to add.
2: Well, I was basically just going to say that. I mean, even when the museums do reopen, it's not going to be the same, right? You know, you hear even the broad is saying that they're not expecting receiving as many visitors this year, right? So I think museum experience will be different from what we're used to.
0: The idea that we're going to be going back to quote unquote normal quickly is... I just don't think it's realistic. And I think a lot of people are, are slowly waking up to the fact that until we have a vaccine, a lot of people, particularly with um, pre-existing conditions, are going to be very limited in their mobility and their ability to travel.
2: Before we log off, I was wondering if we could briefly share audio with our listeners of one of my favorite projects from an LA artist. Could we do that?
0: Absolutely. Go ahead.
2: Uh, Okay, so one of my favorite projects that's emerged out of all of this mess is titled Social Distancing Haiku and You. And it's by the sound artist Alan Nakagawa, based here in LA, um, who was invited by the Orange County Museum of Art to do a project. And he basically put out an open call for anyone around the world to send their quarantine haikus. And he makes them up and put together this really beautiful archive of audio haikus, which you can listen to on SoundCloud or on the artist's website or the museum's website. And I thought it would be fun to play a brief clip for you. I like this timing. Now we can see plants move.
3: Slowness is a gift.
2: I miss normal life. But this way will do for now. But my dog is glad. I want to go out. I always miss my best friends. Soon it'll be over.
0: Just me and my cat. Where are you? There you are. Drama for the day.
2: Prep,
3: tape, zoom, repeat. Teaching across the abyss, the COVID classroom.
4: Poor Avocado
3: left out too long to ripen. A
4: quarantine crime. Pandemic kills many. Unkosher meat, cleaner air, care for man,
0: beast, earth.
4: Our minds separate us more
2: than a fog
4: of alien viruses.
2: Nature has designed microscopic messengers to rescue herself. I just think these haikus are so great. I mean, they're funny, they're poignant. Some of them are pretty eerie, but I think it's just definitely worth checking out and listening to in full. Since we're wrapping up, I
4: would love to share something that a local artist in Santa Fe said to me that gave me a little hope. I was speaking with Drew Lenahan, who runs the gallery Etiquette here in Santa Fe and is, you know, trying to think of ways to survive these next few months. And he said, I think about how this could change people's excitement about art openings. We could be having an insane post-COVID renaissance of social interaction. I think we'll really crave being present and the excitement of being around people. If Etiquette can survive all this and come out on the other side and help her in that newfound excitement." that really pushes me to keep trying. And I just wanted to share that since it's such a hopeful way to consider this time. And I'm also just really looking forward to that renaissance as well.
0: I'm with you. I love that. Thanks so much, Ellie, for sharing that. And thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you, Ellie, for sharing your stories and for keeping us up to date of what's going on all across the country.
2: Thanks, Harag. Yeah, thank Thank you. you. Thanks, all.
0: So now we're going to go to Rome, where I'm going to speak to Anthony Maialatti, one of our reporters, who's going to talk about what it's like currently in Rome, where the city is slowly opening up.
3: Hey, Anthony, how are you doing? Well, I'm fine. I'm here in Rome uh, after about two months of lockdown and uh, getting a little sick and tired of it. But
0: maybe- you, you and me both, and I haven't gotten to the two-month mark. That's, that's for sure. So first of all, any advice on how you pass the time and how the rest of us will survive
3: this sort of uh, lockdown that seems to go on weeks on end? Well, there is this tendency to, to see it as a kind of eternal present, that we live and exist. Nothing we do seems to make any difference. Nothing we do seems to matter. We sleep in, we stay up late. Who cares? And as a matter of fact, this is really bad for us because it kills our creative urges. And if we're meant to be keeping mentally alert and alive, what we should really do is try and stick to a regular schedule where we wake up at a decent hour, go to bed at a decent hour, and that keeps our diurnal rhythms functioning in a way that uh, permits us to, to, to get in, get things done, something which I have not been very good at. <laughs> I bet.
0: Well, you know, this has really impacted what you do every day, too, right? Because you often are sort of walking around the city and doing other things as well. So. Well, yeah, I mean,
3: I'm, a, uh, I'm that strange creature, uh, an independent scholar. And when people say, you know, people say, well, what university are you attached to? I'm not attached to a university, if I am a scholar. And uh, so they, oh, they think, oh, well, he must be independently wealthy. Well, I am absolutely not independently wealthy. And the way that I make my money is in two ways. I do a bit of contract professorship work with American universities that have campuses here in Rome, and there are 40 of them. And I also do some really high-level tour work. So between the two of those, I can kind of keep the Roman wolf from the door. But that obviously has come to a complete stop during this period, and that's very frustrating. But the second thing that I'm working on is, uh, I'm a writer and I'm writing a really gigantic book for Oxford University Press about uh, the entire history of the city of Rome from its foundation until today. And, and, and for me, walking around the city and looking at things and doing uh, what I think of as ocular research is really important. And I can't do that, I, and it's extremely frustrating and I find it, it's very hard for me to carry on. So I'm doing my best with my books and doing research online uh, reading articles and so on, filling my brain with information, but until I can connect it with a physical place, my my process of uh, of understanding history kind of kind of falls apart. Which is why I have to be here in Rome, why I can't be anywhere else to to write this book.
0: Yeah, that's really. I mean, I I look forward to that book for sure. You yeah, know, so do I. <laughs> so I have a question now. I mean, what is open in Rome? Like, what have the directives been? Because I understand this week things were starting to open. Am I correct?
3: Well, this, this week our prime minister went on television to announce what was going to be phase two. What has already happened, which happened last week, uh, was that we had a couple of things open. We can now go to bookstores. Bookstores have been open and telephone stores and computer stores so you know bare necessity basic things the bookstores kind of threw me for a loop i thought oh this is this is an enlightened thing for them to do they're trying to encourage us to keep our our minds uh, active and i think that's true i think that's why they open them but i also think that italy is famous for having empty bookstores and so they figure yeah, you know what's the risk you know What's the problem? (laughs) That's funny. But on the 4th of May, coming up is phase two, the big reopening. And what's happening during the big reopening is that factories are opening, so the supply chain is beginning to function again. Uh, And that's because our infection rate is dropping. Our death rate, which is still relatively high, but it's nothing like what we're seeing in the States. It's still high, but it's dropping. It is permitting us to try and make plans to... Loosen, loosen up the restrictions. Now, unlike anywhere in the States, we here in Italy are not allowed to go more than 200 meters away from, that is, I don't know, let's say 900 feet, <laughs> can't really say, away from, away from our front doors. And if we do, and the police stop us and we can't justify what we're doing with a document that we had printed out and filled out from the Ministry of the Interior, they fine us 4,000 euros which is a lot of money. But anyway, coming up next, we have phase two, which includes, as I said, the factories reopening. So the supply chain's reopening. Uh, we're going to be able to reopen building sites uh, and various other different things. And then the next big step is on the 18th of May, when galleries and museums and exhibitions get to reopen, And that's the day I'm really looking forward to because I'm Missing my museums. I find myself watching movies set in Rome and seeing the Trevi Fountain. I'm like, oh, I miss you. I hate going to the Trevi Fountain. It's crowded, it's full of tourists. I'm just like, no, let's just skip that. But now I really, really miss it. So I'm developing a, a new, uh, new appreciation for the beautiful city that I live in.
0: I love that. So now, is there any indication of how those openings are going to happen? Are they going to be limiting the number of people? Um, because we saw in China and in elsewhere, they've often been limiting the number of people who can come into the museum. So in Shanghai, one museum said 2,000 people another museum said 5,000. Any indication of something like that happening?
3: Uh, absolutely. Because the numbers are dropping, they're only dropping because of social distancing. And there are bound to be huge restrictions on how many people can go in and how close you can stand to anyone else. And whenever we're in any enclosed space, we still have to wear a mask and we still have to wear gloves. So it's not like going back to normal. In fact, I think we may have to redefine what normal is because uh, we're not going to get back there for a long time.
0: So I didn't notice in Rome, is there the restriction that you are supposed to wear gloves as well?
3: We have to wear uh, thin plastic surgical gloves that are, you know, single-use, disposable. We've are they available? We've finally been able to get our hands on them. Uh, it took a month of stress, but now I have a box of them by my front door, and like Kleenex, and uh, just pull a couple of them out and, you know, no glove, no love.
0: Uh, <laughs> well put. Yeah, there's been nothing like that in this part of the world. Um, and certainly not being enforced. I mean, here, even masks, even though they sort of indicate that everyone should be wearing them. I mean, walking around today, I saw a number of people with no masks on, which well, is and quite also boring. a
3: lot of people make their own masks and they make weird masks or funny masks and so on and so forth. I mean, I admire people putting the creativity into their mask making. But you know it, we, we should always bear in mind when it comes to masks that you know there's the kind of mask that has a filter in it that will protect you from the virus because you won't be inhaling it because the filter will filter it out and the normal kind of mask which most people have which is a cloth or, or a cloth or paper mask or a surgical mask which basically prevents you from spreading the virus if you have it because it means that if you sneeze or cough behind it the cloud of, of uh, micro drops of liquid which could contain the virus is much more contained. so we're wearing those kind of masks if, as if we have the virus already. and but at the same time, if everyone wears a mask, then it really does help to co- to contain the possible spread. and in in Rome we've been really lucky because the infection, the hot zones in Italy have been in the north, have been in Milan, have been in Bergamo, have been in now in Piedmont. They're developing in the area outside of Turin, and they're also they're also in the Veneto. So it's all across the big northern industrial parts of the country that the virus is running rampant, and it's really running rampant, just like it is in the states. It's wiping out nursing homes. Nursing homes become a kind of incubators, and the government discovered, decided the Italian government has decided that now is now is the time. To do that long put off investigation into nursing homes that they've been thinking about doing but never quite got around to doing, and we've seen shocking footage on the on the news of you know attendants in nursing homes like beating up the old people. And there are video cameras on the on the ceiling filming this, but the attendants don't care. And they're just like I know, uh, and so this this is shocking the nation. Meanwhile, we're all watching as as you know people's elderly relatives are. You know, first of all, they're enclosed in in these nursing homes. We can no longer visit them. Then suddenly you can't speak to them on the phone anymore. And that's because they're either in a coma or intubated or dead. And then two weeks later, someone arrives at your door with a, you know, in a hazmat suit with a bag full of their stuff and a box with their ashes. And it's one of the most horrifying things that you can imagine.
0: I can't, I mean, I can't imagine mourning is such a communal thing to be sort of like forced to mourn in this kind of isolation. It's just, it's unbelievable.
3: Well, and there's something else too, which is that though the Pope has been extremely responsible about opening church services, and one of the first things that he said as Bishop of Rome was, close all the churches, no more masses are to be said, no more masses. And that was revolutionary. The Pope never says that. But right now, as of yesterday, the Italian council of bishops is up in arms. No, we should be able to have mass. We need to have, the people need their mass. And they were all very upset because in the prime minister's uh, decree that was read to us a couple of nights ago on the news, nothing was said about reopening churches. On the contrary, churches are still closed and mass is still not uh, going to be allowed. And when you think about it, I mean, mass is, you know, the priest is meant to put the, the holy wafer onto the tongue of the believer. Is he supposed to use a special pincer? You know, it, it's the whole thing is problematic in, from every single health point of view. And so, of course, the state authorities are saying, you know, no, you can't do it. You can watch the Pope's mass in St. Peter's on your own, on his own, because he's on his own as well. And That's a spooky thing to see. Or don't go. You know, those are your choices. But now the bishops are getting up in arms. No, people need their mass. People need to go to, go to go to mass. So I think that's part of the, and you'll be experiencing this too if you haven't yet, but I'm sure you have, which is that people are starting to go a little bonkers because they're stir crazy. Um, and the bishops really want people to be able to go outside so that they can go to mass, but also so that they can you know, see each other, that the, the members of the religious community can see each other. So it is a complicated situation.
0: I mean, humans are social creatures. I think that's, uh, you know, part of the foundation of it. But that was really, uh, really helpful, Anthony. Thank you so much. And I just want to make sure that people know that you, on April 19th, you had published in our first ever Sunday edition an article that I hope everyone reads, which is called A History of Disease, Faith, and Recovery in Rome. And I wonder if you can give us a little bit of an executive summary for people just to sort of whet their appetite.
3: Well, what I really wanted to talk about was, in a more general way, how does faith and epidemic, how do these two things intersect? Because they seem to come into direct conflict, just as we've talked about with masses. You know, the community of people want to celebrate together, but an epidemic obliges us to stay apart. And I ended up, I discovered this fantastic story of how in the least likely place in the world, you think, in... 17th century Rome, the heart of the the Catholic Church, embaffled against the Protestant Revolution, incredibly on the defense and incredibly censorious, a theocracy. Somehow in 1656, 1657, there was a plague that swept across Italy. It halved the populations of Naples and Genoa. But in Rome, thanks to the the extraordinarily enlightened uh, government of one particular priest who is in charge of the papal commission on health managed to impose a quarantine very much like the quarantine that we live in that we're living through right now at least we in italy are living through and so suddenly in the most unlikely place in rome in the mid-17th century instead of relying on the authority of the church it relies on the experience of of the scientific method that says what works is keeping people apart what doesn't work is make, making people stay together. So they're closing churches with holy icons in them that are meant to be proof against the plague, uh, which causes tremendous popular o- outrage and, and dismay. And the papal authorities are saying, no, because what's more important is that you you survive. And I end up talking about the Pope taking a couple of these, uh, these sacred images and using them in his extremely uh, evocative and... and and striking mass that he held in a deserted, dark, rainy St. Peter's Square on his own, with these two sacred images uh, behind him on either side, both of which had been prayed to for centuries against the plague. And I thought that it was extremely interesting to see how the church reacted to this new crisis. So that's—I've I mean, said too much, but uh, that's really what I'm what caught my attention about this story.
0: Well, never enough, actually. I think that's really, it's, it's particularly an interesting parallel when we see these uh, anti quarantine protests going on around the world and sort of seeing that in 17th century Rome, there was an equally, sort of, the population was up in arms about having to be kept apart.
3: So it is. They, so they hated it. And, and, and in fact, they were, when the churches were closed with the Holy Eye Continent, the, the people would kneel in the mud in the streets in front of the church still hoping that their physical nearness to the icon would somehow um, as if the icon had a kind of holy radiation that was emanating right. out from it that, that would cure them that would heal them and uh, apart from the fact that this is a t- this is quite touching and this is and I think universal this, this desire to believe against hope against hope that something that you can do on a personal level can affect something as impersonal and and lethal as a plague. Uh, that still affects us today. We still have that urge, and I'm following what's happening in the relationship between the ch- the Italian Church and its responses to the plague. Because I wrote that article, I keep on. I, I have a particular interest in that now. I keep on watching. So you know, I may may I may have to update you <laughs> with another article on the situation as it unfolds. We're moving towards more openness and. The next big date will be the 18th of May when galleries, museums can open, exhibitions can open, uh, so people can go to the Raphael exhibition, which if you can get to Rome, by all means, it's very low, very low death risk here and very high risk of of seeing a wonderful exhibition if you get to see the Raphael, uh, which is one of the best things I've, I've really ever seen. Oh, well, can't
0: That's, wait, can't yeah. wait. So just so for historical context, you said, so in the 17th century, in the mid-17th century, cities like Naples, half the population dies. In Rome, what is the
3: death rate? In Rome, it out of a population of 120,000 people, thanks to the, the imposition of a very strict quarantine, only 15,000 people died. Wow. And Naples had 300,000 people and it lost 150,000 of them. Rome lost 10% of that because of, its, because of uh, quarantine. So it was demonstrably provable
1: that the
3: quarantine worked. And as a result, the, uh, the churchman, uh, Monsignor Gustaldi, who wrote, who wrote the book on how to practically deal with the, uh, the plague, ended up establishing a precedent that we're living with now, even if we're not, uh, not aware of him, we don't remember his name, we have no idea about him. But he changed our lives. He prolonged them. He made us safer. So thank you, Cardinal
4: Gastal, because he became Cardinal. I got baggage.
0: And a very special thanks to Apollo Kings for letting us use their new song, Trust Issues. Check them out. I'm Hrug Bartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe. They won't let me let my God
4: down. They won't let me let my heart out. They won't. My god, down ain't no surprise to yeah. Gotta sit on of trust issues. Oh, I know ya, yeah, I know it ain't fair you could run away, but you walked into my trust
1: issues. Oh, I know yeah, I know that it's gonna take time. But you got me thinking that I could get over my trust issues. So it's not an issue.
4: It's not an issue I get anxious I
2: know Doubt can be contagious Thanks for your patience But I got mad hope
4: So